I was listening to a podcast earlier today that was featuring songs that were Christmas songs, but not really Christmas songs. Okay. Think about the the theme music for Charlie Brown Christmas, right? The Linus and Lucy. That's not really a Christmas song. Right. Another one is the song, These Are the Few of My Favorite Things, which is from Sound of Music. But it really isn't about Christmas, but they talk about wrapping up gifts and stuff like that. So it's typically sung around this holiday season. Interesting. I just assumed that was Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's some others that maybe surprise you. Winter Wonderland. Not really a Christmas song. I mean, I think it is. And here's the one that shocked me the most. Jingle Bells. It's a song about Thanksgiving. It's funny you say that because it was a trivia question on my team holiday party today. Oh, really? Did you get it right? Well, I had the answers. I was administering the trivia. That's an interesting one. I don't know what in the world that has to do with Thanksgiving. One in my top five is Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Technically not a Christmas song. That'd be more fall because that's when the deer are out. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 361. I'm your co-host, Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. The jingle to my jangle. (laughs) Jingle all the way. Also a Christmas movie, right? Schwarzenegger? I think so, yeah. Uh Die Hard, not a Christmas movie. Yeah, I think you're getting a lot of pushback on that. I'm going Ernest Saves Christmas. It's one of my favorites growing up. We're way off track. All right, listen, here's, here's the deal. We're getting towards the end of the year. If you're listening to this at some point in the future, you know exactly when we recorded this by what we've talked about so far, I guess. A special episode give you a couple of takes for a couple of our favorite interviews from the year. But before we do that, quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health is where you can go to find out more about the show, sign up for the TPS report, which is one email. Yes, one email each and every week. Comes out on Mondays, five articles. And hopefully you, the listener, now receiving said email, find that to be a little value add as you uh, kick off a Monday morning. So we'll give you a chance to go uh, sign up for that, and uh, we'll be back with today's show. Again, touchpoint.health. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, it's been a good year. We've uh, recorded a lot of great episodes this year. And, you know, we've had a lot of great guests join us to share their insights. Don't you agree? Somewhat. Yeah. No, <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Yes. Uh, I would say more than not, they were good. No, I'm just kidding. They were all good. But yeah, we had a lot of, a lot of great folks through the year. We always love people joining our show and sharing their insights, their perspectives on the industry. This is part of the reason why we put this show together is because we love hearing what's going on and hearing from people that are experts across the industry. So it's always a critical part of our show. Today, we're going to feature our favorite interviews of this year. We are. I I think, again, a lot of fun. Really enjoy having folks on. A number of repeat guests made their either second or maybe even third or fourth appearance on the show this year. One I wanted to point out, Chris, July the 19th, episode 340, 
User-centered design was the topic. And we also talked about jobs to be done. Another fun. We should go back to the, both of those topics, quite honestly. But our friend Steve and Jonathan from Cast and Hugh. Now, Steve's been on the show a couple of three other times, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, a number of times on the show. And his partner, Jonathan, joined in this particular call. And it was really good because they went into the whole concept around jobs to be done. I'm glad you sparked this one up as one of your favorites. It's one of those that it's not something that probably you think about every day. You know, it's not media buying. It's not campaigns or CRM or some of these topics that we've talked about for a long time and you probably kind of focus on on a regular basis. But when you talk about like experience design, this idea and this concept of jobs to be done, you know, I feel like we're talking about like just in time inventory and you know some of those types of topics. But so it was really great to have Steve and, and Jonathan come on from Cast and Hugh and share a bit of their knowledge, certainly much more than I know. But I tell you what, we'll, we'll pause here and then uh, kick it over so you can have an encore of that conversation. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast, although today we should be calling it Ask the Experts, because we have two experts on the call with us today, and that's Stephen Koch and Jonathan Patheis, both from Cast and Hugh. Welcome to the show, guys. Good to be here. Yeah, awesome to be here. Steve, you've been here before. I have. Um, you've been on the show before, but Jonathan, you're new to the show, but we're really excited to have you here because you you both are the masterminds behind Cast and Hugh. Before we get started with today's conversation, which I'm really looking forward to, why don't we give you both an opportunity to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your individual selves and then Cast and Hugh. Thanks, Chris. And, you know, longtime listener, I guess maybe third time. Yeah, third time. Guest. Very yeah. exciting time. So my background is in marketing. And, you know, through that ad agencies, marketing consultancies did a lot of work across industries. And I was always drawn to healthcare. And uh, I was at this intersection probably 15 years ago of getting into customer journey mapping and human-centered design. At the same time, healthcare was becoming more consumer-focused. And I had the opportunity with the firm I used to work for to, to start Cast and Hue as kind of a spinoff focusing on human-centered design and, and really entering into uh, you know, that healthcare space. So um, since then, it's been, a, it's been a great experience for me. And so really, I focus today on using human-centered design to help our clients solve the wicked problems. And that really involves understanding why people do what they do. And then designing experiences that meet and exceed the needs and expectations of, of those folks and then drive organizational results for our clients. That's great. I always ask myself, why do I do the things I do, Steve? So I'm glad you're, you're an expert at that. But Jonathan, you're his partner on, in Cast and Hugh. Why don't you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, partner partner in crime. I also come from a digital marketing background. I got into that because I, I, I wanted to do something creative. And I think that's this is a really natural first step for people with that goal. But um, as I got more into the branding side of things, I worked a lot on you know, CPG brands and, and things like that. I realized a lot of what we were saying wasn't really lining up with what the actual experience was. The brands weren't really like living into that. And then on this parallel path, while I was at that, you know, doing that digital marketing work, Steve started bringing me in to help out. We were at sister companies at the time started bringing me in to help out on on human-centered design workshops, like doing this facilitation. And I realized there's this really natural connection there between this empathy piece of it, right, of understanding 
people and listening to them and understanding their needs. And I, I had like the sociology background. So I just ate that stuff up. And then the creative piece of like creativity, but like doing it around solving problems and doing that collaboratively with people. So I switched paths really quickly, came on to cast into you. And then now Steve and I are the ones uh, at the helm. That is awesome. And I mean, I'm a really big fan of what you guys do and the particular focus of what your organization does, because I think it's really important. Um, This whole concept of human-centered design, you know, I first heard of this, I don't know how many years ago I heard about it. And at first I thought, you know, human-centered design, isn't all design human-centered? And I was surprised to think that maybe that isn't true. So Steve, why don't we first start off by how do you define human-centered design and why is it so important for us? It's a very good question. And I mean, you know, to put it simply, it's designing with the human at the center, right? But what does that actually mean? And it, it means really building that empathy for somebody and the experience they're going through and then ensuring that you're designing for what their challenges are, what they're trying to accomplish and hearing it straight for them, not making assumptions. And oftentimes it means designing side by side. We do a lot of co-design in our world, bringing patients in, bringing healthcare consumers in, bringing employees in and, and designing together. So, you know, I was really drawn to it because too often I saw experiences that were just designed based on assumptions that leaders made or, you know, just executives that got in a room and decided they knew best. And that's, still happens today. But when you use empathy and you really put the person who is experiencing what you're designing at the center, you just create much more impactful experiences. It's, it's like a cheat code. I like that. Like a cheat code. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great definition of that because you are right to co-create with the actual users of that, whatever experience or design that you're doing is a critical part of that. You know, and Reed and I recently were talking about on a, on a previous episode of the show around you know, consumer insights research and how that's so critical. Human-centered design is really an output of really good consumer insight research. Some of us understand conceptually, you know, what doing consumer insights research. I think a lot of us are kind of sometimes struggle with how do you, you know, the, how do you begin in a human-centered design project or an effort? So Jonathan, maybe we could discuss a little bit about the foundation of how to begin this, how to how to start down this path. One of the things that I guess kind of uh, before we start anything, it's understanding this decision-making, right? And I think there's a lot of value in understanding decision-making. And that's something that has human-centered design at its core, right? We know that this is really crucial, especially in healthcare right now, you know, as people are making decisions around where to get care, where they're going for a referral or uh, you know, getting specialty care and things like that. We use, uh, you know, on top of that, in order to get to that decision making, we use something called jobs to be done. It's this this lens or framework that's really it's this theory of consumerism, but it starts with needs and then it pulls together all these different ways that people make decisions around purchasing uh, a product or hiring a service or something along those lines. Right. So it's understanding. You know, you talked a little bit about on, this, on the podcast uh, last week about market research and things like that. It's about understanding the market. It's about understanding competitors, how people shop, select. So they're, it, people are essentially hiring a product or service in order to make progress in their lives, right? So they're trying to, they might have an unmet need. They're trying to close that gap and they're trying to enter a more desirable state. And when we can understand what that progress that people are trying to make, maybe it's somebody wants to be more in control of their healthcare, or they want to feel like they're able to reliably do the things that they, they always wanted to do. Maybe it's something that simple. But when you understand those kind of desired outcomes or that longer term progress, it's going to be ongoing. Then you can really start designing around that job to be done. Understanding those levers of you know why people might make a choice one way or another really helps you differentiate from competitors. It helps with acquisition, getting getting in front of new people who are making that switching choice, but then also loyalty of, you know, maintaining current consumers or maybe it's employees, um, anything along those lines. That understanding the jobs to be done really starts to get into knowing that customer or knowing the, the person that's involved, the human, so to speak, right, that we're centering this design around. And then is when we start to begin the journey mapping. Is is that the right sequence, Steve? 
I think that's a really important way to look at it because when jobs to be done as that framework, you start to get that understanding. I think one core element is it identifies the uh, the needs a person has that they're trying to satisfy and not just the functional needs, which we often as a trap get caught looking at like, oh, we have X number of locations and X number of physicians and we've done it for this many years. But really people make decisions based on their emotional needs and their, and really even their social needs. What will my friend base think of me if I do this? What, what will they think if I go down this path? Jobs to be done uncovers that. And then when you can do journey mapping with that foundation of jobs to be done, it, it takes it beyond just like simple touch points and actions that are important, but it goes beyond that um, and gets to those needs that are driving decision-making and then understanding where those needs are most prevalent. So then you can be more precise in solving those issues, developing the messaging, the marketing strategies, the experiences that are really meeting the needs of your healthcare consumers, your patients, your customers, your employees. And so I think that's where jobs to be done can really kind of supercharge journey mapping because when you think about needs, there's this gap between that current state in the ideal state. And so when we understand where those gaps exist in journey mapping, we're that much more better at designing that ideal state. I think that makes sense. And I myself have sometimes gone right to the journey map before understanding, you know, the, the reason why these decisions were being made, right? Because it, it seems more simple, right? I'm making an appointment for a primary care doctor. It's step one, step two, step three. But there are so many decisions that people make as you get into that. But the one thing I'm kind of confused about, because there's also a lot of personas and segmentation that goes along in all of this. Jonathan, help me understand how that fits into the overall effort here. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole point of trying to understand needs and, and trying to understand you know, our patients, our consumers better is we want to be able to better speak with them, right? We want to be able to better market to them. And, and traditionally, you've seen a lot of that, you know, there's demographic segmentation, which is like saying, okay, let's group these people based on their age, their location, their salary, something like that. And then there's psychographic segmentation, which is more focused on, you know, beliefs, values, and opinions. We kind of take that approach more, but we take it one step further of saying, we start with that decision-making driver. What is that desired state that that person has? And then we build, we call them demand profiles, but it's a persona and it's essentially segmenting people by their decision-making drivers, because this is obviously the best way to segment customers because people don't make decisions based on their age. They make decisions based on their needs, right? And the progress that they're, they're trying to make in life and those emotional needs, especially. So this helps us also go a little bit beyond these personas are a little bit less focused on correlation, right? Of, of just grouping people based on their similarities. It's more focused on what are the things that are driving that decision making what are the what are the causes behind that so it's more causation focused as opposed to correlation focused which is great i like this concept of demand profiles because it's a different way to look at how you segment your audience right a lot of us in in this space if you're not understanding how the human part of this design effort you sometimes like say, well, you know, let's take psychographic segmentation purposes. People under the age of 25 do it this way, etc. This actually kind of cuts through that old-fashioned way of segmenting your audience and actually gets into understanding, again, back to the, co- the, the core of this, is understanding how people are making decisions. And I think this leads to this concept that, Steve, you mentioned before we started recording. Uh, you said that we now know more than ever about people as data, but we don't know people as humans. T- let's expand on that a little bit, because I think that's a kind of a profound statement. We talk so much about big data. We've been talking about it for years, right? And we see it everywhere. We have operational data. We have satisfaction data. We have demographic data. We have, you know, we have readouts from the contact center. We have the EHR. We have more than ever before. And it could be so overwhelming that at the same time, we could feel like, well, we know so much about our customer, about our patient, that that we totally understand these folks that we serve. That can definitely be a trap because what you have is you have a whole lot of what. But for impacts, for, for insights to be really impactful, we have to move beyond the what and we have to get to the why. And so... You know, big data gives us a lot of the what. We've seen an increase in people switching primary care in the last two years. We've seen a drop in knee replacement surgery. We've seen nurse turnover increase. 
it's hard to get to the why. And even if you ask somebody on a survey, you're just going to get kind of that, that surface level answer. And so you really need to dig deep to understand that ideal state they're trying to achieve that you can't really get from a survey or even a focus group. So, you know, you talked about that example uh, last week uh, around the hybrid ED urgent care situation, and you saw the data of people being dissatisfied and that gave you the what, and then you dug in and got to the insights that gave you to the why, got you to the why, and it helped you design that. And that's what jobs to be done and journey mapping allow us to do is really dig in far below the surface because those are where we get the insights that really impact business results, that really impact how people are behaving so that we could design these experiences that will, you know, and, and this is so important in this era that will help us, you know, make an impact on our business and, and create better experiences for people. Well, just one thing that I'll add to that is it's easy to get a lot of information, right? You can get a lot of voice of the customer. You can get a lot of, we talked about surveys and focus groups and things like that, but to really understand some of the insights that we're driving at, it needs to be an in-depth interview in order to continue to peel back some of those layers and, and go really deep on what's lying under the surface. Because you might say, well, this is easy. We could send out a survey and ask people how they're feeling about something, but they're probably not going to be as forthcoming with that information as they would if you sat down and really started getting the context for them, developing empathy in a one-on-one scenario. So, so much of the work that we do are in-depth interviews and they might take a little bit more time, but we get so many more rich insights out of that to get to that. Why, how do you get there? So. That's not to say, right, that this quantitative data that you gather through surveys and all the you know data that you have in, inside is not useful. Right, right. But you're, you're going one step further now. This is really taking it into understanding, getting those insights from the consumer to why did you make this choice? Why did you wait six months before you, you know, presented at a doctor with your knee pain? What was the impetus to get you there? These are the things that really are golden nuggets if you could kind of figure it out because that could truly inform the design of whatever you're you're trying to create, right? It gets you to the differentiator, right? Because if you're on the surface level, getting those surface level insights, you're going to have the same insights as everybody else. But if you're going to differentiate and create an experience that people prefer, then you need to get to these types of insights that are that are really like you said golden that that help you make the changes design the experiences that are that are going to be transformative to your point i think they're very complementary i'm not please don't mistake me saying that quant i'm all qual no quant i yeah. they work so well together it's just a matter of being able to to get both and and realizing that you need both in order to to really get to what we're talking about yeah there's so much quant today it's easy to depend on it but you need it sure is. And there's different levels of qualitative, too, that you're, you're kind of alluded to, right? It's not just putting people in a focus group because we all know about the pressures of being in a focus group and answering in, in, in similar ways. And I also know the bias of a PFAC, a Patient Family Advisory Council. It's getting to that one-to-one level to really, to really drive in. That's the whole concept behind co-creation, right? You know, when you think about co-creation, it's it could be easy to say, okay, we've got all these great insights. We've learned a lot. Now let's go solve the problem. But co-creation makes it so powerful to solve that problem, create that new experience side by side with the person you're designing for. And I think that's, you know, we do a lot of design sprints where we'll get into that with um, where we've identified some of these opportunities to create better experiences and get into that with patients, with consumers, with employees. And it makes it so much more powerful because not only are your end users and you think about the the state today of we have a lot of nurse turnover and other and within other caregivers and care teams and all these challenges about how do we create that right culture with cost ballooning and things like that well let's create a culture that that people you know if employees co-design it with us not only are we designing something that we know is meeting their needs but it's going to be they're going to be ready to go out there and sell it through to their peers and they're because it's something that they're proud of and it's something that they know is going to meet their needs and you know we see time and time again just our assumptions aren't there we've known that our whole lives but we sometimes we continue to work off assumptions and uh co-design really 
blocks against that. It gives you in a puts you in a position to really hear consistently throughout the design process, both from building the insights to actually designing the experiences from the end user, the person you serve. So you ensure that you're really meeting their needs. I'm really glad that you brought up the fact, Steve, that you can actually apply this for opportunities such as like, you know, employee burnout or other internal things. Cause this is not just consumers we're talking about. I mean, although it is used a lot in consumers and digital front door expressions and all these other things, there are a lot of different use cases in which you can apply this in a health system. You know, when you think about and drill down to the to the core of jobs to be done and journey mapping and understanding the needs and the motivations that drive behavior and decision making, understanding where those gaps are in the experience, understanding the friction points done so much focus on patients, but it's just as important for care teams, for administrative teams, for employees overall, because when we can see that and then start looking at all of those experiences together and understanding, oh, we see a gap in the patient experience, what's happening in the employee experience there? And other examples like that, it, it could be very powerful. And then, and just as I said, the co-design element is powerful as well. So especially, you know, in these times, I think looking at it from that holistic perspective of everybody's journeys through your organization, um, you have an opportunity to, to get that much more, uh, be that much more effective. To kind of piggyback off of that, the the impact that you can have on recruitment, if you're one of those out there who's in the market trying to hire you know, the best staff and you show that you are taking this approach or you're understanding how those people are making decisions about where they decide to go work, but then also preventing you know, that retention, making sure that your employees are staying at your organization because you're understanding what's driving them to change. What are the, what are the forces that might be pushing them toward um, seeking a new opportunity as opposed to staying with you? So there's there's a lot of value there, both on the recruitment side and the retention side when it comes to the employee piece. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, as I think about that, and some of the the, the human centered design projects that I've been involved with, you know, involve both the patient and the caregiver, because you have to kind of design around both of their experiences, right? It's not one thing to make it easier for patients to, let's say, make an appointment with you. You also want to make it easier on the caregiver to accept that appointment and move that through their workflow. So it's almost like you're, it's multi-threaded, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I even see opportunities to look at process from this of using human-centered design to understand from the care teams, okay, where where are you running into barriers and how can we start to solve those problems and, and save time from your day? Because we know, you know, you talked about burnout. We know what an important issue that is. And so there's there's a lot of different ways to look at it from the friction points to the emotions to to all different elements. Obviously, people listening in there, they're thinking this makes total total sense here right now. But in the reality of our situation where we're at in a health system, we're kind of strapped, right? We're, we're having a lot of issues. We're having employee burnout. We're having you know access issues. We're having financial constraints, et cetera. How have you both worked with organizations in showing the value of doing these projects? Because to me, it's, there's a lot of value in it, but you have to show the value up front. Well, I, you know, I think that's a really good point. You look at... You know, I was, I was, I was, I saw some really interesting statistics at the HMPS conference a couple of months ago down in Austin, where, you know, we we've been doing this marketing and healthcare focused on consumerism for the last fifteen plus years, and yet something that stood out to me was that the average healthcare consumer visits four point five different healthcare brands a year, and so we're not seeing loyalty. We're seeing huge increases in. Uh, people going to urgent cares and getting new types of care. We're seeing people put off care. And so we're at this point where behaviors have changed. Um, We're not seeing loyalty. Our front door isn't getting as many visits as it used to. And so I think it's more important than ever to show that value about how we can impact the decisions people make that that will impact the business of the healthcare organization. And so that's what we're seeing in terms of how we're working with clients is a lot more focus on 
things such as referrals? Um, are we seeing leakage? How can we better understand that journey so that we can create the best journey that, that helps people um, stay within our health system? Or how can we better understand how we work better with employees? Yeah, we recently did a project. And, and you know, to, to see the value, you're looking at, hey, referrals have dropped. Let's use this as a metric and see if we can impact this by understanding why those referrals have dropped, right? So we interviewed referring providers to specialties at, at a specific hospital. And what we found were a lot of insights that, you know, there's the obvious, right, that those obviously come up. But then there's a lot of insights there of, hey, these are small changes or, you know, bigger initiatives that we can take throughout the organization that we know are going to move the needle on this. These are things that people are directly asking for saying, I will refer more business if this need was met, which is really, really straightforward. But that's that metric that you can look at and say, okay, was there value of us moving forward with this initiative to meet this need? And here's the, the specific metric that we're going to look at. It's, you know, it's referrals from outside because we know that's, that's massive. Or maybe it is leakage. It's, it's saying, let's see how many of those appointments that we are scheduling, people are actually following through on, right? That's a metric that's really easy to, to, to look at. That was something that we found is that, you know, people were scheduling appointments, but they weren't showing up for them. And so what's the why behind that? What are the reasons why people aren't showing up for this appointment? You know, and what's great about that, the way you described it, the both of you described this is that you're, you're taking a concept of like trying to understand the why of the person, you know, engaged in this design, if it's a consumer or an employee or what have you, um, which is a very nebulous kind of thing, but you're tying it back to an actual business challenge, a strategic business challenge. And that right there shows a lot of value around going down this path because you could throw as much you know money towards a problem as you want, but if you aren't solving the human behavior behind it, you're not going to solve it, right? It, I think about like you could put online appointment scheduling all over your website if you want, but if people aren't willing to take that that online appointment or make an appointment that way with a oncologist or whatever, a cancer doctor, then that's wasted money, right? It's not about designing it for design's sake. It's about designing it because it's going to prove value to your organization. It's about doing things deliberately because too often we want to speed, right? Like your example, let's speed to get the online appointments up. But if, if we don't take the time to understand what that experience has to be to better meet the needs of patients and, and healthcare consumers, then we're going to be going through this exercise that we all often go through where months later, we're going back to relook at it and we we're, we're redoing it and we're changing this and we're changing that. And that costs more money and it costs time. And oftentimes that's when we'll be brought in to say, okay, let's take a look at this and get an understanding of why we're not hitting these numbers that we thought we were going to hit when we when we launched X, Y, or Z. And so it's getting that foundational information can be so valuable, especially today, because we know everything an organization does needs to translate to the bottom line. And so we need to make sure that we're accomplishing that. Yeah. And involving a lot of people within the organization to help support this. This is more than just like a digital thing or a marketing thing. This is this is strategy. This is operations. This is clinical. There's so many people involved in this. And I think that's a really good point and, and something that we emphasize with our clients and something our clients really appreciate because oftentimes we know how siloed healthcare organizations can be, but we drive home is that to be successful, we have to bring all those people together. We can't just be one department creating something that just doesn't work that way. Um, so breaking down those silos can be a, a, a huge benefit of, of this type of work and having these folks from different parts of the organization hear from the patients directly and understand their stories directly. It's so much more powerful than a spreadsheet. Guys, this conversation has been so informative and so interesting. I could talk to you guys all day. But uh, before we close out the the interview today, I, I know there's a lot of people who probably want to carry on the conversation with you. Um, they might want to do it online. What's a good way for them to reach out to you? Visit our website, which is castandhue.com. So C-A-S-T-A-N-D-H-U-E.com. And then also Jonathan and I are on LinkedIn. So Steve Koch, K-O-C-H, and Jonathan Patheis, P-A-T-H-U-I-S. And we're, yeah, always happy to continue on the conversation and just learn from each other. That's a big part of, you know, how we approach human-centered design is, is 
the more we can all connect and learn from each other, the, the more progress we can all make in, the, in this world of making healthcare better for people. I love that. That's a great way to, to wrap up this interview today, Steve and Jonathan. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, it's been awesome. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Reed, I always love hearing from Steve and Jonathan, and I tell you, user-centered design, jobs to be done, you're right. We need to come back to that topic quite frequently. In fact, I'm going to reach out to them and see if they have some time to come back on the show because it's been a while since we've heard from them. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to turn to a topic that I think a lot of people think is my favorite topic. It really isn't. It's one that I've been talking about and keeping track of for a while, which is, of course, artificial intelligence. And one of my favorite interviews came from the time that I sat down with, I'm also picking an interview with two people, Matt and Christian from Loyal, who joined us way back when. Now, this was back in... February the 8th. Yeah, wow. Like early on in the year, on the show that was called, Has AI Jumped the Shark? Yep, that was the, I'm counting here, one, two, three, four, five. That's the sixth episode of the year. Again, back at the beginning of uh, February, a very popular episode, not to foreshadow any future shows or stats we may talk about, but was a was a big one for folks that, that listened. I think AI, certainly, as we've talked about, maybe ad nauseum at this point, is a topic that will continue to be something we focus on. I, Chris, I did a webinar uh, here recently, matter of fact, where that was the topic, you know, and a lot of the questions were around the practicality of it. What do we think about it for 24, you know, et cetera. So again, this is not a topic, certainly this going away. And so I think their take on this uh, is really interesting. Yeah. And they really got into the history of artificial intelligence, even before generative AI became, you know, the thing, the rage. That's right. And it was a really good conversation. And they uh, you know, tied it back to what Loyal is actually doing today because they're doing a lot of great uh, solutions in the space here that include artificial intelligence, not just generative AI. A really great interview. This is my favorite, and I am so glad to rerun this one. So what we're going to do is uh, let's go ahead and give a listen to Matt and Christian, and then you and I will be back and we'll close out the show. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to talk to two experts, not just one, two. So for those of you listening in, this is a, a, a twofer interview today. And I'm talking with two really smart people over at Loyal, and that is Matt Cohen and Christian Boylston. Matt and Christian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This is a really interesting topic, but before we jump in, I'd love for you both to kind of introduce yourselves to our audience, let them know a little bit about you, and also a little bit about the company you work with, Loyal. Matt, do you want to start? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm Matt Cohen. I'm the director of AI at Loyal. I've been at Loyal for about five and a half years, so I've, I've done a lot of work kind of building up the, uh, the AI machine learning foundations from the ground up. And I went to Georgia Tech for college and studied electrical engineering, but ended up kind of weaving my way into the, the machine learning AI space over undergraduate and graduate courses and uh, internships and, and work experience. That's awesome. I don't believe like at the time that you went to school, there probably wasn't a degree around AI and machine learning, right? I'm not sure if there is now, but uh, but back then it probably wasn't. So that's interesting how you found your way into that. Christian, why don't you uh, share with people your background as well? Yeah, um, I can answer the last thing you just said. Uh, <laughs> they, they did in fact have a degree in it now and I, I did get it. I, I'm, I'm Christian. I'm a machine learning engineer here at Loyal. I also went to Georgia Tech like Matt. I did my undergrad and master's in computer science, uh, focusing specifically on artificial intelligence and uh, theoretical computing. I think it's really crazy that nowadays that they have that as a degree. Back when I went to school, computer engineering was just 
pretty much as much as you could do. But wow, it's just crazy. But you know, I kind of I think it kind of speaks to the topic that we're going to talk about today, which is AI and machine learning. When I you know listen to the news, inevitably the tech segment of whatever the news is, or looking online. AI and machine learning is like kind of all over the place now. It's what they call jump the shark, if you guys get that reference, right? It's like everywhere. And recent stories and news seem to imply that AI is just like going to take over everything. And I think today we want to maybe realign expectations. But I'll start with that. Matt, do you think AI is going to take over everybody's jobs and we can all, you know, do something else? I don't think so anytime soon. I think, I hope not. I'm, I'm not really much for the the idea of it fully replacing i think it's it's an a tool to aid people in their work you know data driven efforts a lot of workflow optimization assist along the way i know that recently chat gpt has kind of been the big the big thing and that's you know putting the question if college admission papers and you know content creation is going to be completely uh, re- replaced by by uh, ai and machine learning but i'm i'm not firmly of that stance. Um, I do think that things will, you know, could be improved by the usage of AI going forward. And then, you know, way down along the lines in the future, maybe it gets even more sophisticated, but I I don't see it in our lifetime being a complete takeover game changer. Okay. So we don't have to worry about AI, like taking entrance, college entrance exams and passing, or actually I I heard a recent news story. It said they got a C plus. So just barely passed, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, I'm also hearing about it, Christian, in taking over the artistry world too. I mean, there is a lot of swirl and hubbub about artificial intelligence and machine learning. What's your perspective on that? I think there's a lot of reasons to be worried, but sometimes not for the reasons that people may think. I think sort of historically, the idea of artificial intelligence is sort of trying to recreate something on par with the human mind. And most of the advances that you've seen in Uh, what we call AI are mostly just deep learning, which at a high level is just sort of mathematical function approximation. Now that might be like a little technical sounding, but the idea is taking some data points where you have some input and some output and trying to learn the relationship between them. So like if you can imagine in, I don't know, maybe third grade where you had some, some plots on a point and you drew a little line through it, you'd say that that's some approximation of the relationship between those two things. What we're doing is that, but at a, a, a far more complicated level. That has a lot of implications in terms of you know creating business value and changing the ways in which companies operate. But you know it's not going to be Skynet or Terminator. That's not really. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, that's good to know, right? I was thinking. I think you know many of us think about that. What is that term where you know machines start to think more than humans? The singularity, right? So we're you're saying you're you're rest assuring we're we're a little far off from the singularity. Is that right? We we may not. We I mean, as we're currently moving, some people think that we're moving in a direction where you're never going to see that. We're sort of optimizing towards a, a local optimum, not the not the global one, which could have a lot of uses, but it may not be what people think it is. Interesting. Okay, I think for us to kind of go deeper into this, it might behoove us to kind of take a step back. And talk about how we've seen AI growing and evolving over the years. Because AI just didn't suddenly show up, right? It's been going on for years, probably in ways that we didn't even know about. I I even heard that, like, I read somewhere, may have been Twitter, that Clippy, remember Microsoft Clippy was like an earlier version of AI. Christian, tell us a little bit about how AI and machine learning have evolved over the years. To be fair, I don't have a degree in AI history, but I have read some textbooks that say some things. So I think if we go back pretty far, one of the really seminal moments for the field where it first sort of came into its own was the the Dartmouth Conference, which I believe is in 1955. It was in a summer, and they just sort of got together all these scientists from disparate areas and thought they were going to solve artificial intelligence over the summer. The field sort of started with a lot of hubris, and we've sort of been humbled a lot over time. One of the I guess, early advances that people saw was was the Mark I perceptron, which was the first idea of an artificial neuron. There was sort of a, a logician, and um, I believe a neurophysiologist in the 40s had created this concept of an artificial neuron, where it takes some inputs and, you know, fires or doesn't fire. Maybe like a decade and a half later, uh, a scientist by the name of Frank Rosenblatt created this device called the 
Mark I Perceptron, which could sort of recognize basic objects. And the, the idea was that you could sort of change the way in which the neurons fired to be able to see or not see certain objects. And it had some degree of success and got people really excited about the, the prospects for artificial intelligence. But later on in, in the 60s, there was a, a, a famous scientist, some people might have heard of, Marvin Minsky. He was, he was at MIT. And he wrote this book called Perceptrons, which is what the artificial neurons were called. And he proved in the book that with a single layer of these perceptrons, you couldn't approximate really basic functions. So what does that mean? Uh, a specific example is it couldn't approximate this function called XOR, which means exclusive or. So if I say, do you want an apple or a banana? it's sort of assumed that that's exclusive. You don't get both. But in mathematics, you can have both and it still counts as or. It couldn't learn this really basic function. So a lot of people were pretty disillusioned. They decided, you know, AI is not going anywhere. This is kind of a waste of time. And that started what's known as the, the first AI winter is when people just didn't want anything to do with artificial intelligence. They were like, this stuff isn't going anywhere. No funding if you tried to do artificial intelligence research at your lab, there would be fairly little funding for that. Eventually, that sort of changed in the 80s with something called the universal approximation theorem. What that theorem sort of stated was that any function uh, can be approximated by a sufficiently deep neural network. They later showed it could also be sufficiently wide, but that basically showed that you could guess any function. If you could frame your problem as some input and output, a neural network could approximate it. So people became interested in it again. The problem was that we didn't really have the computational power to make these things efficient. So uh, yeah. um, it ended up being the case that people tried applying it to the stuff, but it was just too slow and didn't work particularly well. So you had this mathematically very plausible way of, of solving problems, but it just wasn't efficient. Once again, people became disinterested in artificial intelligence and that began the second AI winter. And then it sort of started to thaw a little bit outside of that in the early 2000s. But really kind of a seminal moment for the field was in 2012 with a, a neural architecture called AlexNet. Because neural architectures had been around a long time, but they just didn't practically solve any problems because they were just too inefficient. And in this case, a I believe a PhD student under Jeffrey Hinton at University of Toronto was in this competition where they were trying to classify images saying like, is this a dog or is this a, you know, Coke can or whatever. There was labels and there was pictures and you had to make some sort of model that was going to guess, uh, given some picture, what label it belonged to. And the person who was doing it, Alex, he discovered that you can train these neural networks on graphical processors. He figured out that a lot of these operations can be easily like done in parallel so he figured out that he could efficiently train a model doing this. And that was in 2012. And this model kind of blew a lot of the others away and showed people like, oh, we can actually do this. And ever since then, it's just been more and more of that deeper neural networks, bigger, finding better hardware. But it's, it's all been about deep learning. If you've seen anything that's impressive, it's probably deep learning. Okay. But so the way you describe that, it's interesting too, Christian. I like that. There's been a lot of like business-related applications that started to evolve out of it. That's about the time where I started to hear about Google experimenting a little bit. Well, maybe that's like the, the you know the 2010s or that so to speak. IBM's you know Watson that was a big news, etc. Now let's flash forward to today, right? Now we have these like these things that people are just like going to like Chat GPT and even doing like AI to build artwork. Is that what everything's been leading up to? I don't think so. I, I do agree that it feels a bit like a party trick. I guess it, it's worth mentioning that what Christian was saying, I guess it's very revealing how AI and, and machine learning, they're, they're kind of two distinct different things. AI is this, you know, more of the idea of like general intelligence, you know, of this being able to, to solve lots of different problems simultaneously. And machine learning and deep learning is more like small task specific. So we have these things that are really uh, sophisticated for these really, you know, specific tasks. So if it's Dolly, it's generating an image from input text, which it is conceptually very, very uh, impressive. But if you look at some of the results, it's, you know, it's it's still abstract. It's bizarre. And then ChatGPT is very sophisticated. It's a simple, you know, premise. Give it an input prompt, and it responds. 
it answers questions, it generates code. It's still a really tightly defined task. You know, it's got a long ways to go before it's actually useful in in greater context. It's its accuracy is it's it's well known that it's not necessarily generating plausible answers. A lot of it's incorrect. It's good at really constrained tasks, but natural language is a very, very unconstrained task. So it, it's got a ways to go in, in a lot of those regards. But machine learning is it's interesting. It's It's been around for a little while. Uh, Christian and I have talked a little bit about how a lot of the things that are lower stakes is where you see it produced at larger scale. So if it's something like Spotify that's recommending songs to you, the, the risk is pretty low. It's, it's, you know, if you don't like the song, you might let them know, you might give it a thumbs down or you might skip the song. That might be the extent of it. And things like Netflix, you know, recommending a lot of these recommendation systems that are leveraging some of this technology behind the scenes. You do have certain places that have made it to scale. Things like, you know, ChatGPT, if you want to apply that in the healthcare space, that, that gets a little a little questionable because you really have to worry about there's there's a lot more at risk there. A lot of AI machine learning types of work in things like healthcare specifically, you know, helping optimize different workflows, um, you know, automate tasks, not trying to, you know, replace people, but trying to uh, improve the efficiency of, of different things. And we've even seen machine learning algorithms that can, you know, diagnose cancer, but uh, those are, again, that's higher, that's much higher risk. That's harder to adopt. But at Loyal, we we want to help people find the right care. So we can apply machine learning and AI to try to, try to drive people in the right direction when they're finding a provider that can satisfy the specific needs or, uh, you know, performing searches across a wide variety of different healthcare-related inputs. It can be really powerful for you know, I, I, I think of it usually as tasks, like task-specific types of things. And if you can define the task, if you can define the inputs and the outputs, then you can often solve a lot of problems. I'm starting to think of it as like almost there's two, and correct me if I'm wrong, two different ways, two different major applications where you could take AI and machine learning. The big, broad, macro level, right? Well, that's where you're bringing in millions of radiology images together and having them like look at it all and synthesize that and finding trends and like millions of data points. Maybe that's uh, maybe that's a hyperbolic, but you know, like a lot of data to kind of define trends. And that's where I hear a lot about in terms of research and, and other ways that that AI and machine learning have been applied. And then to what you're describing just now, Matt is it seems like on a on a micro level, right? For these little major things, like I'm trying to navigate through to find the right doctor for me, or or, or the Netflix recommendation, right? Um, is that a fair way to kind of look at it? I'll disagree a little bit. I'll say that it's it's a I would say it's more continuous than that. It's a general framework where it's not either big or small. It's anything that you can define in terms of input and output can be thought of a machine learning problem. And that's why we see so many diverse things. It's, it's all a piece of like the same pie, you know, like a self-driving car, you're taking in, you know, pixels from the cameras, uh, you know, readings from LIDAR sensors and other stuff. And then on the output, you're predicting, you know, the angle of the steering wheel, the degree to which the brake or the gas is pressed. So you're predicting three numbers at the end. Um, if you're doing like a recommendation system, you're predicting what's the most likely thing that someone's going to click on. Anything that you can sort of frame as a prediction problem can be tackled with machine learning. And that's sort of like the thing people should think about. This is extremely general and broadly applicable to almost everything. So I think when people narrowly focus on like chat GPT or Dolly or something like that, it's like, those are cool. And they are kind of like party tricks, but you know, we're diagnosing cancer better than radiologists now. <laughs> you know, that's a big deal. We're finding new ways to, I guess, recreate the 3D structure of, of proteins and find breakthroughs and uh, cancer treatments and things like that through it. It's a lot more continuous is the way I would think of it. I think Christian mentioned this idea of like framework, how there's a kind of a general framework that you can build off of. And he mentioned like studying things like protein folding or uh, drug discovery. It's interesting because some of these same technologies that are being used to create ChatGPT as well as to discover drugs that can help cure different ailments, they actually a lot of these leverage the the same 
AI or machine learning framework or technology, the same same infrastructure behind the scenes can be applied to both of those problems, as well as you can leverage that for the review of images, you know, screening images for whatever you're trying to discover about an x-ray or, or imagery. It's, it's, it's a framework. And so it, it kind of lends itself to this, this continuum in, in that sense. I'd love to hear about like some of those use cases, how you're seeing AI being used at, you know, in your space when you're working with your hospital clients. I'd mentioned it before this, you know, this idea of finding the right care. We, we have a, a lot of different ways in which we can approach this. And, and that's a lot of the work that we do is, is from a digital front door perspective. We're, we're trying to make the digital front door more accessible. We're trying to leverage AI machine learning to help aid people along the steps, along the process, kind of a you know, continuum of, of how all these pieces come together, whether it's I'm trying to find the right care. So being able to perhaps process a lot of text reviews in bulk and be able to point people in the right direction based on star ratings or you know contextual information about what people have said in the past and be able you know first step is just to say you know who who's the right the right provider for me and or just to say you know perhaps people just want to know like what 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 do I think is wrong with me I, I have some symptoms you know things like symptom checkers often leverage some some level of, of AI to to help, you know, push you along the direction to be able to say, okay, now that I know this information, let me find the right care. Let me find the right provider. And then behind the scenes, you know, a lot of companies might be trying to optimize. I've mentioned optimizing workflows. So if you're a health system, you often want people to, to make it in, you know, it's, there's always this yeah, a business element, but there's also a kind of a value-based care element or, or population health where you're trying to, to make sure that population is healthy and it's they're able to to make it in so you might try to optimize appointment reminders to make sure that people are reminded in such a way that either they're uh, reminded so that they make it or if not you know that spot might be filled by someone else keep keep the population at whole healthy you know even things behind the scenes like providers taking notes you know perhaps we would you know prefer this isn't loyal specific but Definitely in the healthcare space, you know, we might want to optimize uh, providers' day. So a lot of technology around things like speech to text to, to help with uh, transcribing notes or, or things like that are, are definitely in in the uh, in the space. Or you know, helping people fill out pre-registration forms before you know before they ever even make it in. There are so many steps along the way, and that's part of the thing that I'm excited about is. Coming from a very different background, but being in it now for a little over five years, I get to learn all these nuanced pieces that go into healthcare and especially healthcare from different angles, you know, one being our side, the digital side. But at the end of the day, the ultimate goal is trying to inform people about things that can keep them healthy or drive them in the right direction to, to find uh, a good fitting provider or specialist. You know, it's interesting as you describe that, Matt. Um, it's almost like you're outlining this, this, these scenarios where AI and machine learning can actually not only solve business problems, but uh, dare I say it, like almost infuse it with a little bit of humanity, right? To make it easier for people to do things, which it's kind of weird. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not advocating for the singularity, Christian, not at all, but it almost sounds like this is a, a very interesting application when we talk about healthcare. Yeah, I think it's worth like like going back to more the the generality of it. There's a great book by a couple economists. I don't I think they're at University of Toronto, but it's called Prediction Machines. And if somebody's more into like the economic case for I'm gonna say deep learning, because we're mostly talking about deep learning. It's a great book because it sort of takes the economic angle of how specifically these deep learning methods are going to change things economically. And they think of it in terms of like prediction as a commodity. The idea is that having sufficient deep learning or machine learning capabilities is going to make prediction cheaper, right? Like you can predict whether a customer is going to churn, what uh, potential patients are going to have some disease or something to that extent. Anything that you can frame as a prediction problem, you can get an answer to. And by automating that process through machine learning, 
you're able to make prediction inexpensive. And an easier way to think of that through previous analogies is um, like computers made arithmetic inexpensive. So you're able now to like, you don't have to like hire somebody to, you know, write out and compute stuff or do calculations. And we framed a lot of different problems as computational problems. Like you could think of photography as one that used to be something where you would do chemically, you would put in the dark room and do all that stuff. But um, you could represent that arithmetically as ones and zeros. And finding new ways to use this increasingly cheap commodity is sort of how this is going to change the game. Because prediction is really important in the decision-making process. So having the ability to have good predictions is going to allow you to make better business decisions. And I think that's the thing that people should think about. Um, Investing in the ability to make cheap prediction is going to be very helpful for long-term decision-making. We started this conversation and I didn't realize that we'd go so technically deep, but also so profoundly applicable to what we're working on. This has been such a great conversation, Matt and Christian. I really appreciate you guys spending a little time kind of helping to educate me, bringing me up to speed. And also you really have reframed my perspective on the applications of machine learning, AI, and now Christian, I'm going to start saying deep learning to the work that we're doing uh, ultimately and the problems that we're trying to solve as we're working in healthcare. You know, before I let you guys go, I think a lot of people listening in may want to connect with you guys online. Would you mind uh, sharing uh, ways that they can reach out to you? Matt, why don't you start first? Yeah, you could find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way. Um, Just Matt Cohen, um, C-O-H-E-N is the last name. Uh, That's probably the easiest way. How about you, Christian? I I am a fairly private person, but if you are so deeply compelled, you can email me at christian at loyalhealth.com. There you go. And also loyalhealth.com, right? Ultimately, that's where people should go to learn a little bit more about what you guys are doing in your organization. Guys, thanks for jumping on um, and and talking and sharing a little bit with our audience. It's been a really great conversation. Really appreciated your insights. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Glad to do it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Awesome, Matt, Christian. Uh, again, go back and, and and listen to the whole show because Chris and I are really important as well. Episode three seventeen is what it is. But anyway, yeah, super excited for them. Special thanks to Loyal uh, for letting them come on the show and, and visit with us a little bit. Uh, always been a great partner to the show through all these years. So we'll do a, a few recommendations. But before we do, um, again, Touchpoint.health is the website. The TPS report. Again, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on LinkedIn. We'd love to know how your year went, what you're looking forward to in the new year, if there's topics, things like that, that we should touch on, cover, people we should interview, et cetera. Before we close it out, Chris, a recommendation. Thematically, since this is our official Christmas holiday episode, I'm going to recommend a Christmas show that you should watch that we watch every year. Love it. It's a classic read. And no, it's not Charlie Brown. Although I have a feeling with my son's new obsession with Snoopy, yeah, that'll be that'll be in the future here. To me, it is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, the original animated How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Got it. Not the Jim Carrey. Not the Jim Carrey one, which is okay, but I think the the, the cartoon is far superior. Uh, it was you know animated by by Chuck Jones, who was from Looney Tunes. It was narrated by Boris Karloff. He was the original Frankenstein way back when the black and white movie, it it was just really great. I mean, to watch that always brings back the feels, the memory of Christmas as as I'm a child or whatever. So um, when you're around with your family this year and you want to watch something that is, you know, just really topical, don't forget to rerun how the Grinch stole Christmas, by the way, it's streaming on Peacock. If you have Peacock, you can also find it on YouTube, quite honestly, if you want to see it. So that's my recommendation. Nice. You know what? I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay along that same theme. I know I mentioned Ernest Safe's Christmas earlier in the show. 
Truth be told, I'd probably pick that. But since I already did, I'm going to throw out a different one here. I would say my recommendation, enjoy this every year, is the Santa Claus with Tim uh, Allen. Yeah. You know, my kids are at an age where, you know, I've got a high school, middle school, and elementary school. And I can, like, they'll all watch it, right? Like, it, it's it's enough, you know, like, it's not so childish that the oldest one's like, I don't really want to watch this. Which cartoons or anything animated is also good for this, but this one works well, you know, kind of for the whole family. The setting, the scenes, it's good. It's just a good one. Really enjoy it. The Santa Claus. There are some sequels. I think a second and third, maybe a fourth one. I know there's a two and a three. Not bad, not bad, but but the first one is really, really the best, um, so that's my recommendation. I agree with you, too. I think the first one is the best, but two and three, and I think they came with a new series. They actually have a series now on Disney that's like a kind of an update of the Santa Claus. So. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. You can live within the whole the Santa Claus cinematic universe. Yeah, I mean, there's no shortage, that's there's for sure. No shortage, there you go. All right, folks. Thanks again. Again, we got uh, one more episode this year. We certainly appreciate the support, certainly. But but tune in next week for all the awards and festivities as we round out the year. We certainly appreciate the support. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.